0: to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P dot com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, you get me, Dave, and a guest. Now, like last week, this week's guest is a return guest, so I greatly appreciate that. Um, And he's very well known in the shooting circle. So with that, let's invite Mike Sieklander back. How are you doing, Mike? I'm great. How are you, man? I'm very well. You have been quite busy lately
1: I yeah, I I tend to stay pretty busy during this time of year so I have I I know we had to reschedule one time and I apologize for that but yeah it's uh this is the time of year where I'm traveling and teaching and you know doing all kinds of stuff so busy busy times which is probably a good thing
0: and and shooting nationals
1: trying to shoot nationals that's correct yep (laughs) other matches yep
0: so that's what I want to start off with um you just shot single stack mm-hmm. at Talladega. How did that go for you?
1: Oh, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> it was- <laughs> okay, <laughs> not what I expected. Okay, yeah, it was a horrible match. I mean, I, I uh, certainly didn't perform to my best and found a bunch of uh, weaknesses. And uh, it was a tough match for a lot of people. Surprisingly, you know, you uh, you had a lot of folks that were in the top three and four last year that were you know, barely in the top 10 or just below the top 10 this year. And it wasn't a different crowd. It just, uh, you know, for me personally, it's, I'm not going to go into a long story. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, make much difference. I just had a really bad match and and didn't ha- hit some of the preparation steps that I needed to and that I've identified and certainly have, have write, uh, written about in my book and talked about. And, uh, you know, it's a system, these um, any competitive endeavor is a system you know it's a system of of training steps and if you skip a training step you're you're going to impede your performance you know you're going to set yourself up for potential failure or at least you're going to set yourself up for not having the ability to utilize maybe the skills you possess in the arena you know and that's what you know my good buddy rob latham calls that talent if you don't have the ability to take the skills you possess you know, let's say in terms of firearms training and drill format, and translate them to the to a high-level competition, which is a completely different arena. You know, that's a that's a recipe for disaster. It's funny that you asked that. I have um, my first book was called Your Competition Hanging Training Program. It's probably the, the best I've ever written. It, it 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 specifically has a chapter in it that talks about what I call the modules of success. And in the modules of success, it, you know, there's this diagram I could it out of the book if you want me to and it basically uh it's like a bunch of small circles dave and in the circles each has a specific thing that we need to address in training and in the center i have this blue kind of swimming pool looking pool and it says success and if you miss any of those modules the way i i kind of uh describe it is you you allow the pool to leak you allow some of that water to leak out you know and that includes dry fire training live fire training you know uh vision training, mental training, fitness training, and what I call game day training. And game day training is shooting matches up to the event and learning the information processing flow. So sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but there's so many interesting things there that that I've had to learn and relearn the hard way over years. And uh, the end is always the same result, you know.
0: Now, I, I feel like, though, your line of business and what you do. You're going to have these periods where that's going to happen because you're going to be your focus is not necessarily going to always be on these high level matches because you have other stuff you have to do. I'm sure that's got to play into it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's you're absolutely correct. But, the, you know, the way I the way I describe it is to, to people that I coach and some of my students is if, if you desire an end result then and and you truly want to get to that end result then you have to understand that there are steps to the process and if you're not willing to take the steps it doesn't matter who you are you will probably not reach that level of success wherever you're trying to go you know and for me you know everybody says well there's a difference between excuses and reasons i suppose you could say i have a reason that i didn't perform you know at my best at the nationals or is it an excuse i don't know which the proper term is but for me or anybody else the it, the the equation is still the equation it's like a mathematical problem if you skip a step in the mathematical problem you will not come up with the the answer in the end it just doesn't exist it's a simple of it's a simple series of steps and uh and i didn't you know and you're you're right my reason is because i'm traveling nonstop i'm running two businesses you know i'm i'm writing books and doing things but if I choose to reach that end goal, then I need to change that. I need to find a way to both, you know, do my traveling and teaching and writing and, you know, podcasting and and building websites and find the time to both train, which I'm really good at training. I train all the time. I have very high level of skill, pure skill, but I need to translate that by attending many more matches and shooting against my peers you know, and then learning and, out, and, you know, doing some analysis on where my failures are and the, what I call the quizzes before the final test. And that will lead you to a logical system that you can fix the problems before you get to that final test. And here's the interesting thing about that. You're still not guaranteed to win. There is never a guaranteed win. So everybody listening right now hear that. You are never guaranteed to win but you set yourself up for success. You make winning possible if you follow those steps. But if you don't follow those steps, you ultimately guarantee failure. And it's just something you have to accept.
0: Yeah, I imagine you'll be able to get there once they extend the day from 24 to 36 hours, and then you'll be good.
1: Yeah, that's right. Man. I'm, waiting that. I'm waiting for that extension. For me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not very smart. That's why I've gotten to the the places that I've gotten. And I'm not an enigma, I'm not, you know, some of the these shooters that they were just born to shoot and, and they've they, they won so much they forget how to do anything but, but win or perform at the top level. And I don't really have any natural talents. I'm just so hard headed. I just keep going back to the drawing board and work at it. But the interesting thing is I've learned how to detach emotion. Although I'm irritated and angry about my performance, I can detach that emotion because I know exactly what the logical set of steps is to, to reach that end goal. And I didn't follow those steps. I mean, literally, I got the, you know, the book, it's, it's right next to me. I wrote it in the book. And this book was, I, I think I published in 2008 or 10 or well, a long time ago. Uh, and I went back as I'm editing and rewriting it. The, the system is right there. I mean, I, I would modify some of the drills or do some things slightly different. But the system to end up setting yourself up for success, it's literally right there. I wrote it years ago. Um, the interesting thing about that book was uh, I wrote it, the large majority of it, on a, a high-speed train in Europe. Uh, I was going from Paris to um, somewhere in France. I don't remember the name of the town. Anyways, long story short, I had returned from the European Championship where I lost that match by, like, nine points on the last stage because I shot a couple misses because I felt, you know, I got crushed by the pressure. and up second overall in the European Championships, and I had all these notes and I, I, we went to the airport in Paris and I realized I forgot my passport in the rental car. So I had to do a six-hour high-speed train ride back to the rental car place to get my passport. And then another six hours-ish, Whoa. maybe not quite that long. I'd say eight hours total. And then hmm. at eight hours, I'm like, I'm going to write down what led to this failure and what also led to my successes because I was second overall in Europe. You know, I'm like, that's a pretty good finish, but I failed at the very end. What, what caused that? And that's where that book came from. This, the steps are there. If I simply follow the steps myself or anybody else, you will have success. I can guarantee that, you know.
0: Wow. Okay. So that that book stemmed from a, an eight-hour jaunt to get a passport.
1: It did. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting story. Okay.
0: Wow. You're, so you're going to make me buy another one of your books.
1: Well, I' sorry, man. You know, the funny <laughs> thing is, I had a, I was um, on a podcast recently, and this guy is a really good competition history. There we go. There's the art of instruction. I love that book. We're revising that one too. But the the guy that had me on the recent podcast, the Bang and Brass Guy on Instagram, he had, he didn't have that because how do I not have the book? And I'm like, you know, if you're a competitive shooter, not to toot my own horn, but there's nothing like it. It has a systematic training program where. I can't guarantee you'll win, but I guarantee success. You know, that's a, a, there's a difference. In the end, you won't be defeated. You may not win, but you won't be defeated and you won't fail. And that's the, that's the only guarantees there are out there in life.
0: So. Yeah, and, and there's definitely something to be said about following a process and doing everything the same because um, my work schedule is ridiculous. I work 72 hours in a five-day period. Um, yeah, right. yeah. And, um, you know, then I have the the podcast and, you know, I have three great names, a wife, kids, you know, the whole nine yards. So, um, it's hard to always be able to, I couldn't tell you when the last time I did live fire practice, but, you know, I, I don't even get to dry fire all the time and other stuff, but I have found that shooting a local match and being true to my process and shot calling, I'm still shooting at my current level. I'm not shooting below it. So yeah. that, that does say something. Yeah. Now, how did you, how did you, um, how did you like the match itself? Like the stages they the
1: match was great, man. I mean, it was what I would ask for in a national level event. The shots were hard. The setups were hard. I mean, I look forward to that kind of stuff because, uh, I'm like man. If they make it hard, that's kind of my game. Um, so I, I love the match. I just I just wasn't prepared for the information flow and processing. I felt very off balance. I felt very nervous. I felt a lot of pressure, you know. And I, I you know I asked one of my mm-hmm. peers Nils uh, Nils Johnson, I'm thinking that's the pronunciation of his last name. Nils won, and he he, he crushed everybody. I mean, he literally crushed everybody, you know. Um, by I don't know how many points. Dave Savigny came back and shot minor, and he was second. But I asked Nils, you know, in the awards term, I said, man, how many many matches are you shooting a week? He's like, I'm shooting probably at least three when I'm prepping. Those are club matches and a bunch of majors. And I added it up. And since last year's national championship, where I didn't have the greatest match, I think I was fourth or something like that, I had shot – I've shot a grand total of one USPSA match, one club match last fall. So I'm like, well, yeah, how how do you expect? That would be, I guess, like a guy on the, you know, the golfing circuit. Let's just say a a PGA was just here in town in Tulsa recently. And can you imagine the guy that goes to the the hitting, you know, uh, or putting greens and goes to hit the golf ball on a regular basis and maybe plays a few holes here and there in practice, maybe even on a daily basis, but he never competes. He never, ever goes to any of the, you know, the national events. And then he goes to the, you know, the, grand championship, national PGA tournament, whatever it's called, and tries to compete. This is not going to happen. And it's as simple as that. That's logic. And that's what I wrote about in my original book. I'm like, there's a system to to performing at your best and, and, and uh, potentially helping your, I should say, setting yourself up for success. I, ha- I hate to say winning because I can't ever guarantee winning. You know, you can hire me as a coach and pay me a million dollars. I still can't guarantee you're going to win. No one can guarantee they're going to win. But we can guarantee success. And in the end, if that's first place, maybe it is. Um, Maybe it's not.
0: Yeah, too many other factors there. So you you mentioned something that I I did not think that to put down. Um, So I'm going to throw this in there now. You said nine millimeter minor. And Dave was second. Dave Savignan was second with shooting a minor nine yep. millimeter. And Nils was like 10 points off of winning limited nationals last year with a nine millimeter minor gun.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I did not realize he shot limited minor last year. That's interesting. He did.
0: He shot his canic at limited nationals and was ten points behind Mason Lane.
1: Well, yeah, he's uh, he's an a, an exceptional shooter. He's Every, Robocop. I mean, everything about his game is like unbelievable. I mean, he you know they're 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 just there are a series of the, the greats that are in their prime from a, from an age standpoint. They come into maturity. They have a national level win or whatever that gives them the confidence. They have the skills. They have the talent to use the skills, and then they have some other you know. God-given talents from that, you know, maybe tall, lanky athleticism, good movement, spe- you know, all these things, they just become for a certain period of time unbeatable. And then they're they're all, they, you know, they always fall off. Everybody gets older, everybody ages out and falls off. And so people come back and forth, but Nils is, uh, he is in his element. He's going to be hard to beat for many years. I shot against him last year at the carry optics nationals and IDPA. And matter of fact, I think this week he just shot the RMR on Wednesday and I've got to go shoot ESP against him this weekend. So, you know, I'm hoping I, I'm hoping I could pull out something. I mean, IDPA is a little bit more my game, but he beat me at the Carry Optics Nationals by a few seconds last year. We were very close. We had a good, good race. But he's just, he's just, uh, he's just a, an animal. He's just a beast as far as competing. So. Yeah,
0: he's a different person altogether. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Um, so. All right, I'll get I'll get to that question here shortly. Now you called Rob Latham good friend, I call him godfather. So <laughs> he's like the godfather of competition. Yeah. <laughs> he's been around forever. And what? One did he won last year, didn't he?
1: He won last he won year. Single he won stack. Yeah. He won last year and he won the year before. Yeah.
0: Good lord. Yeah. It's almost cheating.
1: No, no, I can tell you, I can attest there's no cheating, but he he was certainly one of those, like I said, he had <laughs> unique talent he was literally built for shooting uh you know a lot of people don't realize he had better than 2010 vision back in the day with almost no deviation from focal points from near to far um you know he has real short legs and a torso that allows him to be in a good position to shoot and and grab the gun without very very short arms um he was incredibly athletic in high school so he 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 was born to compete and, and to shoot, so.
0: Okay. So he had some things that made it a little bit easier for him, I guess.
1: I think so, yeah. And, and that's all he works at. I mean, he spent every single day of his life working toward, you know, winning, performing his best, being his best, so.
0: Now there was um, – Here we go. Oh, boy, that's a flasher. Yeah. Now you had posted this. That's interesting. Um, this is probably what I was talking about Chrome right here. Um, you had posted this on your Instagram about this is the stuff you were doing for to try to get ready for nationals. Yep. Now, is this what you always do? Or is this just one of those things where you knew you had to work on certain things?
1: No, that's what I always do. Those, you know, those uh, those are logbook entrances from the the Lifire app, which I'm part of and is based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is an incredible app. Um, but those allow me to segregate. And uh, basically, when I when I do my logs on my phone, I can label it as, OK, this is a nationals prep USPSA nationals prep log. So if I want to look at the exact logs I did for the USPSA nationals prep, I can pull that up and say, for example, next year. So okay, what did I do last year that for my preparation? So then I can modify my preparation or whatever else. You know, in having said that though, um, th- there are some things I would change about preparation that I would tweak a little bit. But my preparation was there. My skills I, from a standing. Or moving or just pure shooting drilling you know shooting drills against other people my peer group you know i teach classes with, with we talked about the godfather rob latham as well you know i mean i can shoot next to him all day long he's one of the best shooters on the planet he's you know his hands bother him and he may not have some of the skills he did you know five years ago or whatever else but he just won the last two nationals so he's he's still pretty good and i can shoot next to him i can shoot with anybody it's it's putting that skill into play under the stress of a national level event and processing the information on those stages. That's what you have to be able to do, and that's what I I couldn't pull off this year uh, because of my my because of one of my modules, one of my my success modules that I ignored. You know.
0: Wow, and I was surprised to hear you say as long as you've been in the game. to hear you say, you know. You were nervous. So Oh
1: yeah, I'm always nervous. But I think Rob is too. You know, I, I I don't know. I think if you asked anybody on the super squad this year, anybody, I don't I don't imagine anybody would tell you they weren't or nervous. Maybe Phil Strader might tell you he doesn't get nervous because you know he doesn't he doesn't put any work or preparation into it. But I think he put a little more effort into this this year as well. So I think he feels some nerves, but he's an he's an enigma. Everybody else is very nervous, I'd say.
0: But and, and he uses a lot of humor. I think he uses humor to kind of bring himself back down too.
1: So. I think so. Yeah. I think, and I think Rob does that too. A lot of those guys in the squad do. I mean, really, it's kind of a a screw around game, honestly. If you're in the squad, it's they're all joking and they, you know, a lot of them have been shooting, a lot of us have been shooting together for. Man, I mean, just many years, like years and years and years, like
0: two decades almost. Yeah,
1: literally. Yeah, so it's it's so interesting. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, so a question we've added that we ask people um, is: What does your make ready look like when you get that make ready command? What? What is your process until the beep?
1: Uh, so to be honest with you, I don't have a very uh, long, refined, make ready process. And the reason I don't is I, I really just kind of want to get to the shooting. I visualize the stage so many times up to that point. I normally walk up. I have my magazines in. I know exactly what target I'm, I'm starting on. I know exactly the position or how I'm getting to that target. If it's a stepping draw or a pivoting draw or whatever else, and then I'll step into position. When I get the make ready command, I'll draw and and, and I'll do that initial motion or movement and point the gun. Of course, in, in IDPA, we can't point the gun. So I just draw real fast and I point the gun down, then I load it. But I want to feel that first draw, that establishment of the grip or whatever else. In USPSA, I'll actually air gun and point the gun and then I'll step back and, and load and, and look. I will look I will look exactly where I want to aim on the target, You know, whether it's putting the front side and the rear side notch on the target through the aiming process, or where I wanna see my dot on the target. Um, you know, And then I may visually run through the first few shot sequences in like the first three or four targets that I'm gonna shoot. And then from there, I just, just kind of stand by. I, for me, I wanna get it done some of these guys go through a really long, deliberate, make ready visualization process. I don't know. I find, I feel like I get the heebie jeebies up there when I do that to my to me. I'm already ready. My plan is already ingrained. I, I may think it through one last time, but I don't want to take a lot of time. I really just kind of want to get to the shooting, you know?
0: Okay. All right. Um, now, what did you how, how did you like Talladega CMP? What did you think of that range facility?
1: Well, it's—I mean, it's good. I've been back to Talladega, you know, half a dozen times now, so it was nothing new to me. I mean, it's—it's it's a cool okay. range facility. The bays are all nice. You know, they got a nice layout. It's always pretty hot and humid there generally, unless you're early spring or fall. Um, but yeah, it's—it's it's an okay area. It's—it's it's a good area. Um, you know, CMP is a really neat place. Um, so if,
0: yeah, when I. When I was there for Carry Optics last year, I had wished I had brought my rifle yeah. to get some shooting in on that range. That, that rifle range looked amazing.
1: Yeah, they have a very interesting rifle range setup. They really do. I just uh, It would be fun to go there and shoot some rifle, do some high-power practice or whatever else. So,
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have a favorite range that you prefer to, like you've been to, you're like, that's the range I like. I like shooting there.
1: Oh man, um, no. I mean, I, I mean, I, I travel all, you know, around the country and teach at very unique ranges. Uh, Missoula, Montana is probably one of my favorite because I love Montana. I'm from Wyoming originally. I don't know if there's one that I prefer to compete at. Probably Cameo in uh, Colorado, okay. Grand Junction. I'm, that's where I'm going this week, and I'm actually leaving today here in just a couple hours to go to Grand Junction. Uh, that's a neat facility, man. It's surrounded by beautiful canyons. It just, oh, I just, uh, I love Grand Junction. They have a fantastic facility, like it's world class. It's, uh, it's got to be the best probably anywhere. It's, it's an incredible place.
0: It seems very state of the art.
1: It's, it's fantastic. I mean, literally incredible.
0: <laughs> now, what's next? I know you said you're shooting this weekend, um, but. I assume you're shooting IDPA nationals this year as well.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll shoot IDPA nationals. Um, okay. I'll make, I don't know what, I don't know what's next. I, I, well, I do know what's next. I know, um, grand junction is, is next as far as this weekend. And then I'll, my intent more than likely will be to do a switch over to carry optics and then shoot USBSA Carry Optics in Talladega, which I'm not extremely excited about. I mean, I like Talladega. I don't love going back there, but it's you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where I want to follow the process again and and see where I end up against the Carry Optic shooters. It's a completely different game and crowd, which interests me in terms of training for it. Um, you know, I don't know if it's it's my strongest game. But who knows? I don't know. So that's the intent is to do that and then go right into IDPA Nationals and then shoot carry optics at IDPA Nationals. That said, I may switch that up a little bit. You know, I tend to perform very well uh, in the ESP division with iron sights. But I've been doing that for so many years. I just I kind of want to play with some other things. And I think carry optics is, the, you know, the, the way things are going. You know, you see law, law enforcement, the military, civilian, defensive shooters, yeah. all these folks. Shooting a gun with an optic, you know, whether it's the right thing or not for a lot of people, I don't know. But I think it's an interesting thing to compete with that that sighting system and see where I can go with it. So.
0: So IDPA Nationals is after carry optics nationals for USPSA.
1: Correct. Yeah, it's like.
0: Uh, two mm-hmm. OK. OK. Now you, you brought that up because that was going to be another question for you. I didn't know about this sport until like 2018 and, but I feel like carry optics nationals this year is a throwback to when it was when USPSA only had one nationals because it's going to be so stacked. You're going to have Christian Seiler, JJ, Nils, every single person who is in that very top echelon is going to be there.
1: Yeah, it, it, it won't. You know, that's another thing about finishes. People may say, well, man, you know, Mike, you were second place a couple of years ago and now you're 10th place or what. The, the, the places are not equal. Like it, how you perform, of course, depends on your preparation, the things we talked about earlier in the podcast. But they also depend on, you know, the, the level of talent and what their skill level is. And that's the thing you can't control. And in, you're right. In a, an example like the USBSA carry optics, if you can go and perform well and, and you know finish well amongst that crowd of shooters, that many of many of who are carry optics specialists, that's all they do. You know you are doing really good. Um, and when I say carry optics specialists. You know that's if you look at some of the very top in the game, they do some other divisions sometimes, but oftentimes they're specialists in their thing. That's all they do. You know, you look at you know Ben Stager is, is you know he's been shooting production for years. I know he does other things, but he's dominant in production and he just does that. And Max Michelle right now is probably just pretty much carry optics. I don't know what else he's done. Other than carry optics, I'm not aware of anything else he's done. He might have done some things, but that's where his dominance is. You know, JJ is branched out. He'll shoot the Open Nationals and, the, you know, the, uh, you know, IDPA SSP last year, which he won. But he, you know, he's also so athletic and talented. He's going to pull off a pretty good finish, anyways. And, I, you know, I'm, I don't compare myself to those young guys. They're both buddies, really good buddies of mine. And, and a lot of these shooters are good buddies of mine have 50, I have two total hip replacements, am I ever going to be able to outrun them or move like them? No. But I do believe you should be able to apply the principles of preparation, you know, the ones we talked about earlier in the book, and, and, and do uh, be ready to perform well at any given event. You'll do better to, at a, at a, in a division you shoot more of, but you should be able to take those same principles and apply for any given event. Right. Because the principles will guide your training path, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, one of the other guys was supposed to be here, but he had a schedule change, so he was unable to make it. Uh, I was going to let him tell the story because it's his story, not mine. Um, But Huggy, Chris, we we call him Huggy, um, just went through a basic law enforcement class because he, is in the uh, fire marshal's office, and when they were down, when he was down there going through the class, uh, apparently a lot of people were having some hard time, some difficulty qualifying, and he said they actually pulled up one of your videos, showed it, and then everybody was able, I believe it was the one of the grip videos. Nice. And he said at that point, from that point forward, everybody was able to do what they needed to do. And, and wow. Through.
1: I'm glad I helped. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I wish he was here to be able to tell it because, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs. But but I at least wanted to pass that along. That's neat. So that's where I wouldn't. That is neat. That was really cool. Uh, so he was really excited to be able to talk to you. But um, so that is the one thing I wanted to start with was. Is or is grip. Um, you talk. There's a couple things in particular I'd like to, to talk about. One, the way you kind of counter rotate. I believe is how you say it. Yes. And your and your palm placement. I thought for me that kind of helped me a lot because one of the things when I first started way back 30 years ago um, shooting pistol a little bit more than rifle was I was initially taught you know rotate that non that support hand to where your thumbs are pointing at the target and that would help you with your alignment um, but it was interesting too that I see you posted a video saying you rotate that too much it takes your palm off of the grip and I didn't realize that's actually what I was doing
1: yeah, so um, in terms of grip, and I'm not sure, you know, if this this podcast will be both audio and video, but I assume some people will be able to watch it on video as well, right?
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: If you can watch it on video, if you if you're not watching it on video and you're listening to it somewhere, go find the video. Which Dave, you'll tell them where that's going to be posted, right? So, uh, absolutely. So you know the the couple things, and this is um this is an unloaded Wilson Combat SFX nine. This is a a, a a grip frame that allows me to demonstrate these things because it's a little bit smaller and it kind of represents more of a carry size gun, even though it's not quite as tiny as maybe like a 365 module or whatever else it is, it is pretty small. But one of the things that I talk about a lot is in terms of grip is, you know, placement and pressure. So the number one thing is where we place our hands is really important, like where they physically get placed. You know, the strong hand being nice and high, you know, on the back strap of the handgun, where we have that, you know, index point number one, where we're, we're kind of feeling where the tang or the beaver tail of the firearm is lining up with the web of our hand. And that tells us if we're oriented left or orienting too far right. You know, that's index point number one, but the hand is high. The key indication there is the pressure between the middle knuckle and the tang of the firearm. And that allows you to get the left hand into position. And you know, in terms of what you know you mentioned, Dave, one of the, the key mistakes people tend to do is they they tend I I, I guess the best way for me to describe it is they tend to do they tend to do false falsifiers, false things that they heard from someone in hopes of being able to aim the handgun better. And a good example is well, let's let's point the thumbs at the target and use the thumbs to, to line the gun up. Well, in reality you could cut your thumbs off. And if, if you're pointing the gun, you can tell which way the gun is pointing. Like you take, you know, your finger and you point it at something left or right. If I take the slide and I could point it left or right, I know where the gun's pointing. I don't need my thumbs to do that. I think that becomes kind of one of those false things that we rely on to, to align the gun or aim the gun that don't matter. And the problem with that is that it, it causes shooters to take that left thumb and point it at the target like this, you know, So if I'm doing yeah, point the thumb, I'm automatically taking the palm of my hand and pulling it away from where I should be applying pressure, which let me show the camera here, is back here, right? So what I want to do is I want to apply pressure not just on the side of the grip, but I want to apply pressure on the rear portion of the grip and kind of take my palm and rotate it in and kind of drive it in to the back strap of the grip itself. And that's the counter rotation. If you look at my hands, Now, when I take my hands and I move my hands in my wrist like this, I'm rotating them together and I'm clamping them on the back of the gun, like crushing a walnut is what my big buddy Eric Lund used to say, you know, crush the walnut. I'm I'm crushing the back of the gun. And that increase in pressure where I'm hooking and pressing the palms this way, this way, that's why I call it, you know, the counter rotation simply means I'm rotating my hands like this. I'm rotating them in opposite directions, which drives the palm together. And that dramatically increases the pressure on the back of the gun and really will help, you know, someone potentially control recoil without relying so much on just finger grip strength, if you will, you know.
0: Okay. Now, so what are your thoughts on, uh, like, palm swell? I've seen a lot of people adding palm swell to that. Opposite side.
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, I I'm okay with some, you know, palm swell. We call it our additional material. Back in the day, the first person that I saw doing it was Saul Kirsch. Believe it or not, who owns Double Alpha out of Europe. Saul Kirsch, uh, Israeli shooter, fantastic shooter back in the day, and he would put all this putty on his grip, and he formed it so it fit perfectly in the palms of his hands, and he would epoxy it on the grip. Matter of fact, I think I saw Jerry Barnhart potentially modifying his grip back in the day. The problem I have, had with that is, for me, uh, when I go to my other hand, you know, my support hand, it it feels different or it feels weird. I didn't like how it felt. Um, but I, I don't have a problem with palm swell, assuming you could still shoot with the other hand effectively. So, yeah, it adds additional material that you can drive the palm of your hand into and, on the grip itself. Um I don't do it on my guns mainly because i figured out how to apply that same pressure and tension without adding material and then it also allows me to consistently go from gun to gun to gun to gun to gun to gun gun and still put the same pressure on the grip and not worry about a gimmicky thing like palm swell or a gas pedal or stippling up on the frame which i think is a mistake um in some cases and uh, i can shoot any gun so
0: okay all right now Another thing you talk about with the grip is that I've heard some people say you, you want like a 60 40 type of a grip because of trigger freeze. Yeah. Now, what are your thoughts on strength of grip with the two different hands?
1: Yeah, so first, um, I got a cert pistol. I, I'm not a fan of, of equating trigger freeze with tension in your grip hand. Like, I'm holding the gun really hard right now, but I can still move my finger really fast right? Like you, if you could feel the tension in these three fingers, if you put your finger under a mill, it hurts your finger, but I can move the trigger finger really fast. Trigger freeze comes from an, a, 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 a failure to release the trigger, a failure to fire a shot and then release the trigger fully and then reset the trigger. Now, whether or not you leave the trigger or not, which oftentimes if you watch me pull the trigger, I will probably really, you know, I'll, I'll probably actually leave the trigger because I don't care. Maintaining contact with the trigger is not important to me. What's important to me is getting off the trigger, and back to the wall or back through the trigger to fire the next shot as quickly as possible. But I guarantee when I move my finger, let's say if the reset point is right there, if I move my finger 30 to 40% past that reset point, which might cause me to lose contact, I I will guarantee that I'll reset it and be able to fire the next shot. So too much um, or a limited motion of the trigger finger, I think is what probably causes trigger freeze meaning they fire the shot, but they have never they've not learned to release the trigger. And that's that's how I normally fix that problems in my that problem in my class. I'm not speaking clear. that problem in my class. So when I'm but I want you know to describe my grip, I'm gripping the gun really hard with both hands. And I think that as instructors, we probably said 60, 40 a long time ago, people equated to trigger freeze, but I think the real reason was probably if I tell you 60, 40, 60 with your support hand, 40 with your strong hand, what that really will actually do is bring you up to about 50, 50 because the strong hand automatically or naturally grips harder anyways, because it's your strong hand and you're holding the gun with that hand. Yeah. By telling you 60, 40, it maybe brings the grip pressure up to 50, 50 ish, which is about what I do because a lot of people like a bunch of people under grip with their support hand, they're just kind of holding the gun and letting the gun recoil. That's the biggest problem I see in my classes grip problems. And grip strength and i'll watch a shooter shoot on certain drills i have what i call the fundamental five that i run all students through and i watch them shoot the gun and the hands recoil apart and then they regrip, and the hands recoil apart and that tells me right away that the hands are not clamping the gun together they are not gripping hard enough and driving the palm in with the support hand and i'll walk up and i'll clamp on their hand i'll show them the pressure i want to have on the handgun and it fixes the problem immediately. Then I just need to teach them how to actually apply that pressure by themselves.
0: So when when you're doing strong hand only, weak hand only, um, are you teaching them to use that same amount of grip in those hands?
1: Yeah, great question. So so in strong hand only and support hand only, the the supporting finger, the the placement and pressure is still important. So I teach them you know, to get the arm behind the gun, the body weight behind the arm, to find a mechanical position where the gun is lined up with the arm. So if I could show the camera, you know, it may, it may be slightly canted or I may rotate my elbow down, but the point is the gun and the arm are lined up versus this. This is a no go because then the gun recoils like this, because now the only thing behind the right. gun, I know it's hard to see that. And then the second most important part is these three supporting fingers. A lot of people will say, well, Man, you missed a shot because you trigger control. We, we blame everything on aiming. Did you see the front sight or did you jerk the trigger? And those are the two things that actually are not the culprit 95% of the time. The culprit oftentimes is a gripping presses, a gripping motion either before the shot is fired or as the shot is fired. If it happens after the shot is fired, it doesn't really matter. But what, what happens is before the shot is fired, we're gripping and we're firing the gun and we're trying to push it away from us because we're afraid of it. Or we're gripping because we never taught our fingers to independently move, meaning these three fingers grip and then the trigger finger pulls. And that's one of the things I want people to remember is grip with your supporting fingers and then pull. Don't grip and pull. If you're gripping and pulling at the same time, you will move the gun. So when I'm working on one hand, I literally focus on gripping with the three fingers and then pulling the trigger Switch the other hand, grip, and pull, not grip and pull. So if you feel yourself gripping as you're pulling the trigger, you will make a big difference and move the gun. So that, that will help a lot of shooters if they give that a shot.
0: Well, and, and one thing you haven't mentioned that I, I will, uh, there's two things I learned from you last year that have helped my strong hand slash weak hand only shooting. Is exactly what you just said, because I knew I I wasn't jerking the trigger, but I couldn't figure out why I would have misses when, you know, my sights were there. And I found out that's exactly what I was doing. I would get my dot where I wanted it. I would go to pull the trigger and I would squeeze with my other fingers as well. That's right. right. And but I didn't know that until you were on here and I started checking it in dry fire. I was like, holy crap. That's exactly what I'm doing. And the other one is my thumb. I asked you, how in the world do you grip? And you're you're the one who mentioned the thumb up. Yep. And now I do it that way with both hands. And I'm like, this is perfect because it really helps me the way I grip to kind of stabilize the gun. So it's not doing this anymore (laughs) because I was gripping so hard.
1: And that thumb up, you know, we we called that we called that flagging in a class recently, and, and Rob and I had a big, long discussion. About. He doesn't like that term. But the point is, we want to have the thumb up so there's no gap in the rear part of the grip. But you want to be real careful that you don't have the thumb up so high that you start to take the grip, you know, this part of your palm away from the back of the gun because that becomes an over-flagging issue where you're now you're defeating your own purpose. But yeah, I like to take that thumb. You know, on a 1911, I'll ride the safety, you know, and another gun, I may have a little bit higher, but the point is I've got pressure with that rear knuckle in the rear portion of the handgun. You know, I can turn around like this and you can see a little better. So it's it's flagged up. It's not down riding that middle finger like that. I don't, I don't like that as much. Um, I like to have the thumb up, so.
0: Yeah. And that, and I mean, I shoot a canic, but so I've got a, I've actually got a flag in, so it's, it's safe, but same thing. There
1: you that's go. That's exactly
0: how I do it. After you said it, it goes right up along the back and it really helps that almost like gives me that counter pressure. Exactly. So it, I used to do not that bad. I'm exaggerating, but I mean, it would be like, that's how it looked in my sights. Right. You know, so when I started flagging, it's like, oh, now look, now it it stabilizes in the center of where I'm aiming, and I can actually pull the trigger and know where my shot's going. Absolutely, man. Two thank yous there. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.